Good morning to everyone, and a happy new year to you all. You can't say anything back to me, can you? <laughs> uh, but it is great to see you all. It's good to see so many children here, and I hope that the children who are here and young people are armed with colouring sheets, worksheets, and sweets to give you energy. Uh, but it'd be really good if you could listen in to the teaching that we have now. What we're doing as a new format for this new year, especially while we're in Tier 4, is we're going to break things down into adult teaching, but in child-sized bites, so that the young people can enjoy with us and we can learn together as families. What a wonderful opportunity to do that. Maybe it's one of the blessings that God's given us in the new year. I have one other notice before I get going, before I pray and get going, and that is to say it is actually, and I wouldn't normally do this, but it is my mum's birthday today, and she is 90 years old, and I believe she is actually watching on video, so hi mum, that would be great, we won't sing happy birthday, we can clap though, she certainly deserves it. She's been a wonderful mum to eight children, so you know, she's earned her stripes as it were. Uh, I'm Andy Bruins, by the way, I'm the pastor of the church here. Uh, We're now working through a new series going through the fruit of the Spirit. We've actually covered the rest of the book of Galatians up to this point. We took a break at Christmas, and now we're going to get stuck into this new series. So why don't you join me as we pray and we look at this together. Father, we do ask for your help this morning. We thank you for this new year, a time of year where we are thinking about ways in which we maybe need to change. But we do thank you that by the power of your Spirit, through your Word, real change can happen in our hearts. And so we do ask that you would speak to each of us this morning, challenge us about the way that we live our lives, and help us to be more like the Lord Jesus, to bear more of this fruit in the coming year. So we commit our time to you now. Amen. Uh, Now, please do have, if you've got a Bible, have it open at Galatians 5. We really want to look at the Word of God together. That's what we do on Sunday mornings. And I'm going to start with a reasonably long introduction, but bear with me. I think it's a really helpful illustration that will help us as we go through this text this morning and we introduce this topic. I'm stealing an illustration that's been used, I'm sure, by many different preachers. Uh, No one tells it quite like Pete Woodcock, my friend uh, and colleague down in Kingston. But it's based loosely on an illustration that I was reading in a book that I read earlier on this week. The author writes about certain types of dogs that you are likely to encounter in your local park. So if you spend enough time down the road there in Somersault Park you are bound to encounter these dogs. The first one we're going to call Spike. Okay? Now, Spike, he is choking at the leash. You've seen this dog, haven't you? He's taking the owner for a walk. He's pulling hard. He's making that rasping noise of ah, 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 as he walks along. Right? You've got Spike there. He can hardly breathe. He so desires, he so wants to be free. He wants to chase cats and rabbits. He wants to smell the dead thing that's down in the ditch. He wants to roll in the smelly thing that's on the grass. But that leash, that lead, chokes him back all the time. Sometimes, if he's at home, you'll find Spike out in the back garden and someone's put a stake in the ground and they've tied him up. And he spends the whole day straining against the chain and barking his little head off. 
He's not a happy dog, is he? Spike. Okay, good. Right, the next dog we're going to call Buster. Here's Buster. Now, Buster is basically Spike, but he's off the lead, right? So he's herring around the park. You've met Spike, Mike Buster, haven't you? He's the dog that comes hurtling towards you out of nowhere and jumps up at you with muddy paws or something like that. And all the time, the owner is away off across the fields and he's yelling at the top of his voice, Buster! Buster, get back here! Heel boy, get down! And Buster runs around fighting with all the other dogs, sniffing all of their bottoms. He chases the rabbits and the cats all over the park, and he does roll in the smelly thing in the grass. He reminds me of a, of a boxer dog that my oldest brother once owned called Queenie. Uh, Queenie was constantly bouncing, knocking everybody over. You couldn't have children anywhere near Queenie. I mean, she loved everybody, but she was just knocking everything down. One day, Queenie was visiting our house, and she found the cat litter tray in the kitchen. It hadn't been changed for a couple of weeks, and she ate the contents of the cat litter tray. See, Buster has a kind of freedom, in quotes. It's a sort of a freedom. It looks like freedom, but Buster is not a happy dog. He's a sick dog. Now, the third dog that you'll meet we'll call Max. Max doesn't have a lead, look, but he still walks obediently by his master's side. Max has got that kind of guide dog level obedience, yeah? Not a failed guide dog, one of those ones that makes it through the training. And so, sure, Max sees the same sights in the park, and he smells the same smells. He wants to run after everything that his doggy nature is yearning for. But one word from his master, and it restrains him, and it brings him back. He wanders a bit, but then there's that gentle call. Here, Max, Max, come back here. No, boy, come here. And he's back by his master's side. Because there is something that Max loves more than the dead thing in the ditch and more than the smelly thing in the grass. It's his master. He loves his master. Trusts his master. Listens to his master. And Max is a happy dog. Right? Now, there's also a, a fourth dog that I'm sure we've all encountered. And we should probably just mention him for completeness here. We had one of these in Kingston, uh, and it was a dog that was actually brought to the morning services at the church. His name was Quincy. Uh, he's the sort of dog that actually gets carried places. You know, you might put in a bag or such like. You met dogs, seen dogs like this? He's the sort of dog that's, that's carried around, and, and that's because he is too small to actually go on walks. He's too weak. The master has to do everything for him. Quincy, down in Kingston, had a little coat, a little rug that he used to wear on cold days because of inactivity. He couldn't even generate enough heat uh, to keep himself going. So, you know, frankly, I don't understand why people get these kinds of small, yapper-type dog. They are basically cats, except they make more mess, more noise, and they're much higher maintenance, right? So why would you bother? Bit of a pointless dog. Sorry to anyone who owns a chihuahua. And actually, in fact, one of my brothers owns a collection of chihuahuas, but there we go. Now, these dogs, these dog types, are a great illustration of the people that you'll meet. You notice that. Let me try and illustrate it to you. 
The first type of person that you might meet is like Spike. And they're law-abiding, and they're moral, and they're respectable, but deep down they are extremely resentful of that lead that they're on, that morality that's choking them back all the time. Chains that restrict their actions. You know, those chains might be constructed by the culture they live in, and they just want to rebel against it. They'd much rather break free from these things, given opportunity, given it, you know, social acceptability. Their morality, their adherence to moral rules is a burden to them. Are they happy? No, they're not happy people. In fact, we've encountered them, haven't we, as we've been going through the book of Galatians, and we see these religious false teachers trying to put people underneath the Old Testament law. They're not happy people. Now, the second type, second type of person, they're like Buster. You bet people like this, no inhibitions at all. They just live exactly how they like. They lie and they steal and they cheat. They do whatever they want to do. They say whatever they like to say. They indulge every desire as if there's just no restraint on them. Nothing's out of bounds for these people. If it feels good, do it. I mean, it's rare that you meet people in the really extreme end of this spectrum, but people are along this spectrum, aren't they? A lot of people are like this. And it might come as a surprise, but these people are never really actually happy either. Now, teenagers, listen, because... You know, you don't see this so clearly when you're young, kids. You don't see this. But if you live a few more decades, it becomes painfully clear. This kind of life, this kind of freedom, in quotes, this actually libertine freedom, as it's called, never really results in happiness. Instead, it actually ruins us. It's the reason why Western culture is constantly reaching for therapy and drugs medication, desperately trying to seek what it is that they're missing. It's a false freedom. Well, now they've got a third type of person, and perhaps you've spotted what they're like, like Max. They are those who've discovered that perfect liberty, real freedom, is actually found in obedience to the law of God. And that's a really ironic thing. They've learned that the true self, so really finding yourself, you encounter yourself not by giving over to sin, but through voluntarily surrendering to God as their master and in loving service to their neighbour. They've discovered that it's in those acts and in those attitudes, which we've seen in the text here, that real fulfilment is found. And they behave like Max the dog. You know, they might stir, you know, that nature, the old way of being might be stirred up every now and then. And they want to run after these things. But a word from the master and they're back. He calls them back and they're coming back. And they trust him because they know he loves them. And they know that he will provide what they need. It's a great place to be. They're happy people. Now, we've been traveling through the book of Galatians for a few months now, actually, probably maybe four months We took a break for Christmas before getting into this second half of chapter 5. And over the next couple of months, we're going to be engaging with these verses as we look closely at the fruit of the Spirit. You know, Tiago's had them up on the screen already, hasn't he? This morning, we're just going to spend a few moments setting the scene before we get into the series. You'll remember, most of you have been here for the series, 
Galatians, this letter in the Bible, is a letter that is deeply concerned about Christian freedom, real freedom of a Christian. The church in Galatia, you see, was under attack from false teachers. They were Jewish teachers from Jerusalem. They were trying to persuade people to follow them in going to live underneath the burden of the Old Testament law, the law of Moses. And Paul's been at pains to get the Christians in Galatia to see that if they put themselves under that law like a burden, which is what the false teachers want them to do, they'll actually be rejecting the freedom that they have discovered in Jesus Christ because he sets us free. And these people had been slaves before. Now, I don't mean slaves to like a human master who's, you know, whipping them and keeping them in chains. No, all of these people, even though they weren't Jewish, they had been slaves to idols and false pagan gods going to their temples. They'd been working away at trying to please those gods, at making costly sacrifices to appease those gods, and it was a form of slavery. But in Jesus Christ, they had found, they had discovered a saviour who had offered to save them finally and completely, totally save them. Listen, the big point of the gospel the truth that was in jeopardy, really, for these Galatians, the foundation of our freedom, really, was that Jesus doesn't just save you on day one when you put your trust in him and then kind of hand the responsibility over to you for staying saved. No, when Jesus saves you, he saves you completely. It's a finished work. He doesn't just forgive our sins... Remember the word we used? He justifies us. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. Condemnation is not hanging over our heads anymore. Justification is written in the ledger under our name. Bible teacher J.I. Packer defines it like this. It's up on the screen there. Listen. To justify, big word, to justify in the Bible means to declare of a man on trial that he is not liable to any penalty, but is entitled to all the privileges due to those who've kept the law. Imagine that. I mean, the first bit we sort of get, the second bit is not intuitive at all, is it? To be justified means you are entitled to the privileges of those who've kept the law, even though you've not kept the law yourself. Amazing. To be justified means... That the final verdict about you before God has already been passed. God has accepted you once and for all because you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're trusting in his righteousness, not your own. And that is the verdict that hangs over you. Justified. Righteous. You are no longer then, because of this, profound truth, you're no longer slaves Working to please God. No, instead, you are now sons of the true living God. Heirs of eternal life. Waiting, really waiting to inherit that eternal life. That's what a Christian is. You are profoundly free. That's what Paul's fighting for here. So look again at those verses as we 
that we finished up uh, with before Christmas. We read them earlier. And this is my first point, really, is our freedom is freedom, but it is liberty, but not license to do what we like. Have a look at verse 13 with me. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbour as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. You know, it is wonderful to be free. This is a powerful teaching of the word of God. But we need to understand what freedom does and what freedom does not mean. See, think about those dogs. We can easily see that a dog-like spike isn't free. He's choking against that lead, you know, he's trying to get free. But we look at a dog like Buster, herring around the park, eating rubbish, and it looks like freedom. In fact, that's probably what the world around us would say, oh yeah, that's free. He's free, he's doing what he wants. But it's not. There's a difference between, and here's two big words, there's a difference between freedom and there's a word called libertinism libertinism okay it's a big word for the day libertinism means that it's it's basically it's an anything goes way of life just follow any desire that you have and go for it but listen to me and please listen that is not freedom it's different from freedom one author puts it this way listen he's going to put it he's going to try and get it across to you three times listen to it Freedom, properly understood, is not the absence of all constraints upon behaviour, but submission to the right constraints. It is not the rebellion that recognises no authority, but the discernment that distinguishes legitimate authority. True freedom is not the licence to do as we please, but the liberty to do as we ought. Do things we should do. Let me just illustrate this so we get this. Remember the illustration we gave earlier on in this series in Galatians. Illustration of a train. Picturing a train. You know, you've got to picture that sort of Thomas the Tank Engine kind of train with a face on it, right? Because this train's going to do some thinking. And the train is thinking to itself, I want to be free. I hate these tracks. I want to go and explore the world around me. But a train is only free when it stays on the tracks. If it leaves the tracks to pursue freedom, the result is literally a train crash, isn't it? Thinks it's free, finds itself grounded in the sidings. And listen, that's verse 13. Look at at the text. It's libertinism. Indulging the desires of your sinful nature. And the train crash that ensues from that is seen in verse 15. Look, Paul makes no bones about it. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. It's a train crash. Rather, says Paul, submit to the right constraints. Love your neighbour as yourself, he says in verse 14. Now there's some train tracks. You can run smoothly along and no true 
freedom. That's real freedom. And here's the beauty of it. It comes from the Old Testament law. Moses wrote that down. Love your neighbour as yourself. Those tracks which seem to confine actually enable the freedom of the train. So Max, Max is a happy dog. Why? Because he knows he's loved. He knows his master. He loves his master. He trusts his master's going to provide everything he needs. He trusts that what his master says is going to be best. And so he always comes back and falls back in line and gets back into step with the master. Because that is the happiest place to be, and he knows it from experience. Now, My second point that I want to make this morning, uh, and this is a slightly smaller bite, the bites will get smaller as our energy dwindles. The second thing really to see here is that Christian life is a battle. You see that in these verses. Take a look with me. What follows is Paul's recipe for true Christian freedom. Look at verse 16. So I say... Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. So Christian freedom is something that must be fought for every day. And there are two, compo- two opponents in the fight. The first one is this thing, the sinful nature, that we see in that first verse there. The word actually is just one word, and it's the word flesh. It's a funny word, and it doesn't mean very much to us today, perhaps. But the flesh, when the Bible talks about the flesh, it's talking about our sinful heart. It's the part of us that is not yet renewed by the Spirit of God. Our flesh, then, is that driving force behind our sin. It's that part of us that pulls us into temptation and leads us to follow its desires. Okay? And in opposition to the flesh, then, says Paul, is the Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. This is one of the three persons of the triune God. So if this battle is between your flesh, and the power of the person of the triune God, who's got the most power? The Holy Spirit. Now, the word desire here is an interesting one, and it's an important one. It's stronger than the English word that we have for desire. So I might be thirsty for a glass of water, and I might say, I desire a glass of water. You know, I just want one. I'm feeling a little bit thirsty. But that's not really what this word means. This word really means a a kind of an over-the-top desire. It's an inordinate desire. The older translations of the Bible used used to use the word lust here. The lust of the flesh, as it's called. But that's actually got some unhelpful connotations to it. So you understand why the modern Bibles use the word desire. But it's an over-desire, not just a desire. It's a a desire that is greater than it should be for something. It's a desire that is threatening to go out of control if it's not brought into check. And we need to see this because most often the things that we desire are not actually bad things in themselves. 
The problem is, as someone has put it, that we tend to take good things and turn them into God things. We tend to worship things. So, for example, if you look down the text in your Bible and you look at that list of so-called acts of the flesh in verses 19 to 21, many of those things, although it's an appalling list, many of them, when you look at them, have a good foundation. The acts in themselves are, in fact, an over-desire or a twisted desire for something that might actually be foundationally good. So if you look at that, that list, you've got sexual desire, which is, which is a good desire, becomes immoral, impure, debauched in that list. Those are all over-desires, twisted desires. Worship in that list has become idolatry, do you see? Enjoying a drink has become drunkenness, and etc. But battling the desires of the flesh is the Holy Spirit of God at work in the heart of the believer. And so there's a clash, there's a conflict, there's a battle going on. We all know this, don't we? You've felt this battle, I guess we've all got wounds. But because the Holy Spirit's at work in this battle, that's good news. Without the help of the Spirit, we would be helpless in the battle against our flesh. In fact, what would we do? What would we do? We would enlist some help from somewhere because we'd know that we're powerless and we would almost inevitably reach for laws and rules and regulations to install in our lives for help, wouldn't we? And what do we see in the earlier parts of Galatians? We find that if you do that, you find yourself, all the law does is it condemns you further. So you're fighting a battle and you're being condemned and you're starting to get resentful and you're like old Spike there pulling against the chains wanting to be free of this misery. So Paul lays out the solution and it's in verse 19. You want to know the solution? Have a look. Paul says, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? But here is a truth that we must grasp in the Christian life. We will not succeed in the battle against sin by simply trying harder to be good and to stop sinning. This is actually the way of the law. You know, I mean, I guess, uh, certainly I know this from talking with, with my children as they've grown up. When, when children become aware of their sin and they become disappointed in themselves over this, it can be a desperately difficult thing. And they're thinking to themselves, why, can I, why do I keep doing this? I love God. I don't want to do this. I find myself doing it. And it's painful and it's difficult, isn't it? What we don't want to turn to is just more resolutions. Grit your teeth a bit harder and get on with it. Instead, you've got to learn, we need all to learn, to rely on the supernatural help of the Holy Spirit to strengthen us in the battle. Now listen, listen carefully, because this is a big issue, isn't it, for Christians? This means more than just turning to God for help when you're about to teeter over the edge and fall into sin, which is, I guess, when most of us cry out, oh, help me, God, I'm about to fall. You know, this is why Quincy... The lap dog is not a good picture of what we should be. Because he's just, he's just useless, isn't he? He's just a blob. 
The Christian life is not one of waiting for the master to carry you around on a cushion as you lie there. There's nothing Christian against the idea of, uh, about the idea of passively waiting for God to do stuff to us. The Christian life, and read the New Testament, you'll find this, the Christian life as modelled for us by those who have run the race is actually a life of action and activity all the time, isn't it? Look at how Paul writes in, just in these verses we've read. See what sense you get. Verse 16, we are to live by the Spirit. And the word there actually is not the word for life, it's the word for walking. It's talking about the journey of life, starting one point, going to another. It's a journey. It covers the whole of life. And you're to live, to walk by the Spirit. This is why the dog's illustration is so good, isn't it? We've got to go, we're going for a walk. That's what life is. And we're to do this by the Spirit. Again, look at verse 18. We are to be led by the Spirit. And that's a phrase that often gets, I think, a little bit misused and abused, doesn't it? The idea of being led by the Spirit. People tell you they're led by the Spirit to do all kinds of interesting things. And it can, it can become an excuse for dubious life choices, can't it? Or, you know, I feel that the Spirit's leading for, for, for me to do this. But that's not how the Bible uses the phrase led by the Spirit. In actual fact, this is a good example of it here in Galatians. And you'll find that wherever this expression is used, it's talking about being led into conflict, being led into battle, spiritual battle. That's how the Spirit leads. He's your commanding officer. He's with you. He's walking into the trenches with you to do battle. He's taking you onto the front line. That's where God leads. Or look at verse 25. So we've had walking and being led. Now, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That is not a passive expression, isn't it? That's not a lying on the cushion like Quincy thing. It's, it's, being, it's keeping in step. It's walking next to the Master. The journey of our lives must be in step with the Spirit, keeping pace with him. Just like Max, the ears are attentive to any instruction that might come from the Master, listening for the Master's voice. Eye on the Master. Where's the Master? All the time. Let me sum up this little section here then with two applications for us to think about. Two important things here. Okay, listen. The first is this. It seems to me that what you've got here then in this passage is a clear portrait of how the Christian life should be lived if you want to be winning those battles in the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's what your life should look like. It's, not, it's definitely not one of weekender Christianity, is it? It's not Sunday's only Christianity. It's a life lived in closeness to our Master. God has given us his Holy Spirit, to strengthen and to guide us all through life, in everything. It speaks of a life lived in constant awareness that he's walking next to us. Is that how you live your life? It speaks of a life vigilantly listening for his instructions, a life marked by devotion to his word, hanging on his words, often in prayer, seeking his guidance and wisdom. Is that, is that, what, is that how your life looks? 
We are to live like Max and his master, in that happy freedom of obedience to a thoroughly good master who's loved us so much he's given his life for us. So if you find yourself making no progress with the sin in your life, you need to honestly ask yourself, well, what's my walk like? What's the totality of my life look like? Can people tell from my priorities, from the way I live and use my energy and use my time, that actually I adore my master, Jesus Christ? Do you approach your Bible every day, and I mean every day, wondering, I wonder what the Spirit's going to say to me today through the pages of Scripture? Are you bringing your struggles and your aspirations and your thanks and your praise to God throughout the day? Is that the kind of relationship you have with God? The answer to those questions says much about how you really view God. Is he a God of laws or is he a God of love? that you faithfully want to walk next to. That's the first thing. It's a picture of what our life should be like. The second thing is this, just to make this point, that the Christian battle is normal. I'm sure that we all have painful memories of moments when we've fallen into sin. When we've willingly followed those desires of our flesh into grievous sin, and some of those things listed in verses 19 to 21 might be painful for a few of us to read. We battle, oh, we battle, but the flesh seems to get the upper hand all the time. There are deep, entrenched habits of sin that grip our hearts. Do you experience this? Now, Paul's not written what he's written here with this hideous list's to discourage us. But he doesn't want us to be complacent about the way we live. Sin crouches at our door. But do not despair. The point here is that rather than putting effort into trying to reform yourself, put effort into your relationship with God. Love him. Trust him. And look to the Spirit for constant help. Are we doing that? You know, over many years of counselling Christians who are discouraged by their failures and their sin, I have often had cause to remind them of this wonderful truth, that the battle itself is evidence of life. If you're dead, you don't fight. So you might well be engaged in the battle and discouraged in the battle, but the battle itself means you're alive. As someone said to me after the first service, you know, a living fish can swim against the stream. A dead fish just gets carried along with it. So be encouraged. It's pretty good evidence that you belong to him if you're fighting. So strap on the armour of God and get back into the fight. Do that this year. I know we're not in Ephesians 6, but you realise the only one weapon in the armour of God is the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. We're to have that handy, aren't we? Or we will fail in the fight. Okay, this is probably the point at which children need to crack open that little bag of sweets and boost the sugar as we uh, have about another 10 minutes or so and we're finishing the service. But we're going to think about these last few verses here. Have a look with me at verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage... Selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. 
I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Now, we're not going to look at these lists in detail this morning. We've got nine more weeks ahead of us to really take a look at the fruit of the Spirit. But I want to make a couple of observations as we finish up this morning. First, Paul is basically saying here that where we stand before God is obvious to see in the fruit of the lives that we live. He says as much, actually, in that first verse. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. They're obvious. They're plain to see. Actually, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. If we do not have the Spirit at work in our lives, what will be evident is the acts of the sinful nature, or the flesh. And these are numerous. The list is actually left open-ended in verse 21, because Paul expects you to fill in the blank, basically. There's tons of ways, tons of acts of the flesh. It's just an over-desire for almost anything, isn't it? But these are a list that you have here of outward acts. They will be there, then, for all to see. They will bear testimony to the fact that you do not belong to God if this is the flavour of your life. As Paul puts it in 21, look, it's harsh warning. Look at it. I warn you, he says, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Please hear that. Now, the word live here is different. Oh, it's so confusing, isn't it? Too many different words all translated as live. But the word live here is different from the other occurrences. It doesn't mean walk this time. It means do. It's an act about doing. So it's those who do. But it also, it doesn't refer to a one-off deed. It refers to a repeated occurrence. Don't tune out. It might be better understood, this sentence, as those who are practitioners of these things. So this list here doesn't damn anyone who commits one of these acts. Rather, it exposes those who habitually do these actions. Those whose lives are characterised by them. And they are exposed as being outside of the kingdom of God. Conversely, though, the evidence that we are indeed children of God will be evident from the fruit that gets described there in verses 22 to 23. And if you've got your colouring sheets, you should be colouring them all in by now. Whereas there's almost an infinite number of sinful acts, you know, sinful ways or acts in which the flesh might display itself, the fruit of the Spirit is different. It's a single package here. We're not to think of the fruit in this list as fruits. It's not fruits. It's fruit. It's not like a bowl containing a selection of goods from the greengrocers. The idea is a bit more like an orange, you know, with lots of juicy segments. It's got nine segments, but they all go together in, in one fruit. The fruit is basically, as you read through this list, the fruit of the Spirit is basically a description of the character of our master. 
Jesus Christ. And it comes as this single package, each aspect, each attribute growing together has become more like him. Jesus was always all of these things all of the time. Now, this is important. It means you've got no excuses for just saying something like, you know, uh, well, God's made me a peace, peaceful person. I like peace. Uh, but he hasn't given me patience or kindness. You know, that's not, I, I, I haven't got room for that. That's not what I'm like. In fact, I'm just going to pursue one of these things. No, you pursue the whole lot as a package. It goes together. God is growing this entire fruitiness, and it ought to all of it be on display. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this. The way that these lists are described, I want you to see, is important. One is a list of acts of the sinful nature. The other is a list of fruit of the Spirit. Acts are contained within themselves, aren't they? Acts are an instantaneous thing that you do. They're doings. They just happen. They happen as a result of those impulses and desires that cause them to happen. They're acts. You can act now. You can act tomorrow and do an act. But the fruit is not an instantaneous thing. The whole picture, the whole idea behind fruit is an idea of growing. It takes time to grow and be produced, doesn't it, fruit? And the fruit in verses 22 to 23 is a result of a lifetime, all of these things. It's the result of a consistent walk. It's not fruit that just you know, normally springs up overnight. I mean, there might be instances you might know people that have radic radically transformed on the day they were converted. You know, you often meet people whose the, the bad language they use is just completely obliterated and, you know, they speak differently. You know, some things get zapped out. But there are other people that, you know, they struggle with the same addictions and habits they had before they were Christians. And they struggle on for years, making slow progress. But this concept of fruit conveys the idea of time being needed to grow it. Cultivation needs to happen. And this is what we're going to be looking at in the weeks to come. How do we cultivate this fruit? I mean, who likes pot noodles? Anyone here like a pot noodle? Okay. I, uh, I know at least one person I work with who is not ashamed to eat a Bombay bad boy. <laughs> okay. But the fruit of the Spirit is not a pot noodle. You don't just add boiling water and hey presto, meal's ready. Fruit takes time. The seasons will take their toll. Hot and cold. Fertiliser. Smelly fertiliser is going to have to be dug in. Pruning's going to have to happen. And I can see a few keen gardeners here in front of me. You know the work that this takes. You know the time, the involvement. But it will grow. It will grow because there's life involved. The power of the Holy Spirit will see to it. When I was growing up, I remember uh, in our home, we had a tarmac drive with a thick layer of tarmac. And one morning as a kid, I went out there. I don't know if you've ever seen this. There was a lump in the tarmac. I wonder what on earth could be causing that. And eventually, I mean, I thought maybe a mighty oak is bursting through the tarmac. But no, I woke up the next morning to find a mushroom had pushed its way. Several mushrooms pushed their way right through, lifted the tarmac up. Soft, delicate mushrooms. But the power of life that was in those seeds 
just ripped the ground apart. Isn't that amazing? And Paul reminds us that there is a new life within us, the life of the Holy Spirit. We encountered it in chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We've crucified our sinful nature, says Paul here, verses 24 and 25. Our flesh is on the cross. And the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God. And we live it in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And that power will make us more like Christ if we will keep in step with the Spirit each day. So do not fear the battle. Jesus Christ has won the war. And he's given us his Spirit so that by his power we might be led into that battle each day alongside with him and see that wonderful fruit growing in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And I hope that you'll join me in praying over these coming weeks that God would help us to learn how to walk in this wonderful freedom, the freedom that comes from a close walk with him and loving obedience to him. Well, I'm going to finish by praying and then we're going to finish the service. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and has justified us forever. That we have nothing left to prove to you or to earn from you by our good deeds or our efforts. But help us, we pray, to live lives of true and joyful freedom, keeping close to you, listening for your word each day, keeping closely in step with your spirit who you've, you've graciously given us so that we might know your transforming power in our lives. Help us then over the coming weeks to cultivate that wonderful fruit so that we might be more united in love for each other and in devotion for your son, in whose good name we pray. Amen.